following is a special presentation of the Mars Attacks podcast, member of Talking Metal Digital. This is Kurt Winstein from Crowbar, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. Uh, hey, what's up? This is Liam from Cancer Bats. Hey, everybody, what's happening? This is John Bush. Hey, what's up? This is Joey Z from Life of Agony. Hey, everybody, this is your big... Gene What's up? This is Doc Coyle. From- hey, this is Chuck Billy from Testament right here on Mars Attack. Hey, this is Rex Brown from Kill Devil Hill. Hey, this is Richard Christie from the band Charred Walls of the Damned on Metal Blade Records. Hey, this is Chris Mars from Six Feet Under. Hey, what do you say? Be careful because Mars Attacks. This is Bobby Blitz from Overkill. You stay tuned. on a journey that will start in the present and take you back in time, hitting on music from today and jumping back 10 years at a time. Welcome to Decades on Mars Attacks. Here is your host, Victor. Welcome one and all to another episode of Mars Attacks. Uh, We are continuing our Decades series here. Joining us this time around is Scott from the great, great show, Focus on metal, Scott. How are you today? Hey, Victor. I am. Uh, I am both psyched and a little apprehensive about being on decades. Uh, the, you've done these great ones before, and uh, you know, I you know, kind of listen to them and be like, "Oh, I wish I thought of that idea." And and then now I'm on here, and it's like, "Geez, uh, this is a little bit tough." So, uh, but it's awesome to be on the show. Being the music lover that I know you are, I don't think you'll have any problem at all. We'll see. So, <laughs> so for those of you that are joining us for the first time, the concept of the show is this. We play a track that is a new track that has come out this year in 2015, and we jump back 10 years at a time. So we'll be touching on 2005, 1995, 1985, and 1975. And uh, what we'll do is the first track... Um, Being that we just started out the year, uh, we're just going to play one track from 2015. And then with these other years, each of us will pick a track and we'll discuss the year itself. Um, We'll discuss the albums that we're selecting, you know, why we selected them, so on and so forth. And um, for people that are not familiar with Focus on Metal... Um, where do you want people to go to check out the show? Uh, well, the best thing is probably to go to focusonmetal.net, um, or you can find us on iTunes, obviously. But um, that's probably the, the best spot is focusonmetal.net. And from there, you can get to our, our new site and Facebook and Twitter and all that good stuff. Awesome. And um, you're doing some great shows, uh, was, uh, as I was mentioning off the air uh, Due to the fact that Chris Angarides has provided some great comments to the Classic Albums series, um, I was drawn to that episode that you did with Chris, and I definitely recommend anyone out there to go listen to that. Another uh, bunch of episodes that I've listened to and that I've started um, filling in the gaps. I didn't get to listen to the whole series yet, so I'm going back and checking it out, is the... Uh, Strange Highways series, mm. which I absolutely love that album. 
Um, again, it always harkens back to people saying that music in the 90s wasn't any good. Well, that Strange Highways album, to me, is one of the best things to come out that decade and uh, definitely a hidden treasure if you if you haven't checked it out yet and um, a very strong album from start to finish. And definitely was great to hear how you guys put all the guests together and uh, just some of the various uh, comments that came out of the, the people that were involved uh, with the album. And I definitely can't wait to listen to the rest of that series. And Yeah, that was a blast. That was a blast to put together. I mean, that was Richie's idea. You know, Richie's my co-host, and he came up with that one. And just everybody that was involved instantly was on board they were just like so thankful i mean jeff pilson was like you gotta come up you, you we're, we're playing up at the casino you gotta come up you gotta hang out well you're gonna talk to me right in person about it and and you know he went and, and pulled people in and then rudy sarzo who's you know not even on the album was so excited that we right. were doing it he pulled people in that's how we got scott warren um and so yeah it was it was a lot of fun to do that one people were just again it got so maligned when it came out but now people look back at it and they see it for what it really was. And so it was a, an absolute blast to do those episodes. Awesome. And I'll, I'm going to give you my honest opinion. I would actually – I actually think that the Tracy G albums, in my opinion, I would have to rank those right after the Vivian Campbell albums. Mm. I I love those albums so much and um, I know that a lot of people really like Magica and they like a lot of the stuff that Craig Goldie did, but – I, I prefer what, what Tracy brought to the table, just my opinion. Yeah, yeah. And, and again, you know, there's a guy who's super passionate about music. He is absolutely a blast to talk to and um, just like or just a really giving guy to just having him on the show and stuff. He so appreciated us wanting his opinion on the album and stuff. He sent us like a copy of everything he's ever put out and stuff, too. Just just a really super wow. guy. Awesome. So. Again, if you guys want to check that out or anything else that Scott does with his co-host Richie there, go to FocusOnMetal.net. Let's get the show on the road. The first track that we're going to play here from 2015, 2015, however you prefer to say it, is going to be the title track and the first track that you will hear on the Fresh out of the oven Udo album, or UDO album, excuse me. Uh, the name of the track, I'm sorry, it's the second track off the album. The name of this track and the album is Decadent. Let's check this out.
What you just heard there was Decadent off of the latest UDO album. Have you had a chance to listen to that yet, Scott? I have not. I I, I do have it. Um, the label did send it to me. I just I haven't. But you know what's cool about like you playing that is that um, you're kind of seeing a resurgence of a lot of uh, focus onto that type of metal again over the last you know year year and a half. And, and if you had asked me and said, Hey, what would you like to play from 2015? I would have probably picked uh, another one that just came out, a band called Air Raid out of Sweden, and they have their album Point of Impact. And this one, again, it harkens back to to Maiden and Accept and Priest and all that, and just another, you know, fantastic album that, that fits in that. And it's, it's great to see people going back and, you know, rediscovering Udo and a lot of these other bands that are coming out and doing really amazing job at that kind of metal again. Absolutely, and a funny thing, we're going to hop back to the your Chris Angaridis uh, episode there, or two episodes, when you mentioned how a lot of bands are coming back and using old technology to record things again, the first thing that I thought of was how Udo mentioned that with the last UDO album, that that was exactly what they did, was they recorded it in the studio together, and then when it came to mixing and adding overdubs and whatnot, that's when they added the newer technology. So you're definitely seeing a lot of bands trying to you know, inject a little bit of soul, a little bit of feeling that was... Uh, maybe been lost with uh, you know with a lot of technology coming along and uh, and with all of these um, quote unquote bedroom superstars mm. route. Yeah, and that's what <laughs> that's what's impressed me about Air Raid. And I, I had talked to them too. Is the fact that you know, and it's not that it's a horrible thing. You know, I know that it's expensive studio time, and you have to do what you have to do. And a lot of bands, like you said, they've been doing pretty much these kind of internet project and their you know Pro Tool files back and forth and all that. And you know, I've been guilty of doing that myself. But even these guys, he, they were like, nope, we we went in the studio, did the whole thing, soup to nuts, 
all together in the studio. And it was, you know, amazing that um, there's still bands out there that are on small labels that are willing to do that. And the sound they get is amazing. You would have thought that they would have used, you know, spent like $100,000, $200,000 on making it. Did a fantastic job. And it, it is cool to uh, to do that. And I, I even remember talking to Udo about that when his last album came out as well, that he was talking about you know, getting back into doing that type of stuff. So it is, it is great to see that. Awesome. Uh, let's see. So let's jump into your first pick here. Let's go back to 2005. Um, there are some very big albums that came out this year and it's, it's amazing. It's been 10 years already, yeah. you know, that <laughs> they're just flown by, uh, the, the first album, when I was compiling my list of things to discuss, the, the first thing that really jumped out at me was Avenged Sevenfold City of Angel mm. or City of Evil, excuse me. That was my first introduction into the band. And uh, the reason that I checked them out was a thing that, you know, a lot of people have always done. You see a cool album cover that looks sort of like a Eddie type deal or a, <laughs> or Vic from Megadeth, you know, and you say, ah, well, let's see, are these, uh, is this metal? What, what is this, you know? And I checked it out and I thought it was, thought it was cool at the time. And, um, and you realize you're like, holy shit, 10 years has gone by for this album. So yeah, there's, that's come out 10 years ago. Um, Bruce Dickinson's last solo album, which is another mind-blowing thing, Tyranny of Souls, came out 10 years ago. Um, you had what at the time was Deep Purple's last album, Rapture of the mm. Deep, um, which was their first studio album up until, what, about a year ago was when the... Um, yeah, I think it was about Bobette a year ago, yeah. Yeah. Um, you had Disturbed, who was still putting out albums. You had uh, Dream Theater, who put out... Octavarium, uh, Rob Duke's first foray with um, Exodus, uh, Shovelhead Killing Machine. Um, let's see, you had the last Corn album with Head up until last year, which is See You on the Other Side. You had Life of Agony's last album. You had up until that point Limp Biscuit's last album. For people that are, you know, cursing me out right now. Um, and you had Motley Crue getting back together again. One of their many um, times that they've gotten back together again since um, 2005. They, they put out a Greatest Hits album mm -hmm. and uh, put out two new tracks, which, you know, um, they've said over and over again, it's, it's those four guys. There were uh, people like Tracy Guns that were saying that DJ Ashba had played on that, so... I guess something that we'll never really know. Yeah, that's a great little package, too, the Red, White, and Crew package. Definitely. That's a good one. Yeah, I'm surprised they released that like in three different formats because the, the, deluxe, the deluxe format was just so killer with just the songs that they picked because they had a lot of great tracks that had never been like really mixed well, in my opinion. They uh, released Black Widow on that, which was one of those things that back in the day... Uh, people that were tape trading, they, you know, that was one of those tracks that uh, that you always look for. Well, let's see, you know, um, I have the demos to shout at the devil. Okay, I want to see if it sounds any better than what I have. Right. You know, yeah. so it was those things where, for years, you looked for that track, and finally, on this greatest hits album, uh, they released it. Um, 
what else did we have? We had on the last episode, my selection for 2005 was Roadrunner United. Uh, that has a few pretty cool tracks off of it. And, and what I mentioned then, you know, I'm surprised that they haven't done anything similar to this. Now, Roadrunner's essentially gone, and that's probably why, you know, that, that happened. And I'm sure lawyers have a lot to do with it because not everyone that played on the album uh, is is on the label anymore. So for Nuclear Blast, for example, to do something similar, um, I mean, I would think that it would be would be difficult yeah. uh, in the format that that Roadrunner did it at the time. So um, what other albums? Let's see. We have uh, System of a Down's last two studio albums, which were recorded at the same time. Mm. You had Mesmerize and Hypnotize, and now there's talk of them recording again. Um, Another interesting thing that I wanted to point out were what bands got back together again and what bands got together for the first time. You had Ripper Owens for a solo project, Beyond Fear. Mm. You had uh, Ishan, who left, uh, I believe it was Emperor. Right, yeah. And, um, and I don't know, I'm, I, I'm a big fan of his solo work. You know, I'm not big into black metal, uh, but I really appreciate what, what he's done with his solo work, I think it's amazing um, that some people maybe downplay the, you know, using seven string or eight strings or yeah. things like that. And he's yeah. one of the few artists that I think actually orchestrates the instrument well. I mean, there are other people like animals as leaders and people like that that do a fantastic job as well. And I mean, Steve Vilas, I forget about him, yeah. but but he, but he I think sounds he should... pretty cool. I mean, he did. What, what you know, I would never really be listening to Emperor. I'm not really into into the black metal and stuff. But he did a he did a column for about a year, I think, for Guitar World, and it was a really great column because you could really get inside his head and realize what a talented musician this guy actually was, and it it gave you a pretty um, pretty good and new appreciation for what he does. And I, I always enjoyed that column. It just it it kind of gave a really cool perspective on somebody that I probably wouldn't listen to. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I saw a few of the um uh videos that they'd posted up on on the web as well. It was definitely very cool to check out there. Um what else we had in this moment and Five Finger Death Punch were also formed in that year and bands that reformed. You had Allison Chains and you had Anthrax that put the old classic lineup together. And as far as 2005 goes, what are some of your standout moments or standout albums that you would sort of pinpoint? Uh, well, I mean, uh, one that's it's you know not like uh, something that I live for every day or anything, but um, the the band Crash Diet and they had put out Rest in Sleaze. It kind of kicked off kind of a new kind of glam sleaze metal movement over in Europe that's continuing even now. Um, so that's that's right. kind of a kind of an interesting one. Um, Arch Enemy, um, you know, I don't really go into a lot of that end of metal, but I absolutely love Arch Enemy, um, and you know, with with Doomsday Machine, and um, that's just a great album. And then you got a couple. You had Gus and Apollo from uh, from Firewind that were actually guesting on a couple of the tracks on there and stuff. Just a just a really cool album for that. You know, you mentioned Dickinson with Tyranny of Souls. You know, another great album as well. And, um, you know, probably the one that, that for me for that year that was uh, it was uh, Judas Priest with Angel of Retribution, because I kind of 
took Priest off my radar for a long time and um, just happened to realize, oh, they got this new album out and, uh, you know, went out and, and it was just it was just a great album to hear, you know, those guys again and, and what they were doing and, and Rob being back and, and all that. And and um, that's, you know, probably one of my my high points for that year was was is Priest. Okay. Um, what track off of that Priest album would you recommend we listen to? Oh, absolutely. The first one, Judas is Rising. Yeah. I mean, it... Kick-ass track. I, I've seen them perform that twice live. Yeah. So. <laughs> it, I mean, it's absolutely great live. And I thought it was just a, you know, a perfect track to kick it off with as well, because it yeah. just... All of the classic Priest elements just come rushing right at you. Just even the, you know, the initial with, with Rob's kind of vocal effects, the whole thing. It's just a, such a great way to kick off the album. And it it allows you to forgive some of the other lesser metal moments that are on the album um, it, by starting it off at such a high point. All right. So let's jump into a little Judas is Rising by Judas Priest.
Coming off of Angel of Retribution, to me, probably the best Priest track that they've recorded since Rob has been back in the band. Definitely one of my favorites by the band. And um, again, we go back to this Chris Angaridis um, interview. (laughs) If you haven't checked it out, go to focusonmetal.net and check it out or subscribe on iTunes and, and download it and listen to it. But um, it was interesting hearing him talk about, you know, the the gadget, the um, the Rockman setup that um, uh, that Glenn brought in to record Painkiller. Mm-hmm. And, and for as much as I wanted to get into the last album that, that they just put out, Redeemer of Souls, there's just something with the, with the guitar sound. There's just something with, you know, I don't know, the mix that, that's just off – for me um and all i could think of was you know they need to get a big you know producer or not a big producer they need to get a producer in there that knows how to handle the band and and knows how to tell them look you know this is you know this is judas priest this is what you guys need to sound like this is the direction mm. you need to go in similar to what he described when he you know, worked with them on on that painkiller yeah. album. And I know Richie had the same thing. He really disliked the mix, you know, on the last one. I I actually really enjoyed the last one. Now, part of that might be that I was just so happy that it wasn't like Nostradamus Part Two, and you know, right. it actually had some great tracks on there. And and live, seeing them live and performing that stuff live, is probably the best I've heard them in years. So I mean, live, it just totally, you know, just amazing metal performance by those guys and uh you know if you get a chance to, to catch them live performing any of that stuff they really were just amazing the night i saw them awesome yeah they're gonna be uh going out what with ozzy now right yeah 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 and like i said having um you know with kind of the new blood in the band as well i mean he just he slots right in there so well you know one track uh glenn was having guitar issues and he just stepped in and and you know, almost like a lot of people I don't think even realize that, you know, from where Richie and I were watching, it was kind of we were watching a spinal tap moment of Glenn trying to get it to work and his text running out and they're both looking at each other and they're running back and forth and all that. But, um, yeah, just with, you know, fresh blood holding it down, he just he held it all together. And um, just uh, I think a band that's really just firing on all cylinders right now. Could that have been orchestrated to uh, show the fans, hey, you know, Richie can actually pull this off? Uh, I, I don't think so. It looked like they were seriously having a, a wireless problem. All right. Um, the band that I'm going to get into, a little bit less um, traditional in in the sense, but a band that I've always loved, especially their earlier few albums, I always thought that uh, they were a cross between... Uh, Tool, and I don't know, a lot of people like to say Slipknot because they wore makeup and and things like that as well. But uh, I definitely think that they're a much more musical band. Um, Their rhythm section to me is one of the best rhythm sections to have come out of the decade of the 90s. And the band that I'm talking about is Mudvayne. Hmm. The name of the album is Lost and Found. 
And this is a track that whenever I listen to it, it gets stuck in my head for days. Um, uh, this is definitely not, you know, with the vocals and everything else, it was something that was really an acquired taste for me. But once I really started to sit down and listen to that whole uh, instrumentation part of things, the, the whole musical side of things. And um, it, it really reminded me of, you know, bands from uh, the 70s or, or even, um, dare I say, Zeppelin or The Who in the sense that you really have a very strong rhythm section with the guitarist that isn't really... Um, isn't there soloing all over the mm -hmm. place. He's just sort of the, the glue that keeps everything together. And then when he needs to solo, he is soloing. So um, not to say that he's, you know, Jimmy Page or... No, uh, it's very... I mean, what Chad would... Uh, Chad, what, what Greg would lend to it was... was Yeah, you're right. It was very different. And, and, and having that rhythm section is what I think for me, too. I, I wasn't a huge Mudvayne fan, but yeah, that... that the stuff that they would come up with would just stick in your head. And what was weird about it is a lot of times, you know, you listen to a song and you get something like that rhythm and that's in your head. Yeah. But what's weird with Mudvayne is then you those little weird parts that Greg would add would also stick in your head where it was almost like these incidental little things. But the whole thing would come together so well that just all of it would get stuck in there. And sometimes it's like you didn't want it in there, but you couldn't help <laughs> it. It was in there. Yeah, absolutely. So. Um, let's check out a little Mudvayne now. This is coming off of 2005's Lost and Found. It is Fall Into Sleep.
there we go. A little bit of mud vein there. We sort of um, had a traditional hard rock metal band, and we came back with something that was a little newer there. Um, let's continue on here with 95. Man, 95 had so many great albums that came out as well. We had the return of ACDC with Ball Breaker. We had uh, Black Sabbath, which with an album that wasn't supposed to be a Black Sabbath album, then it was a Black Sabbath album uh, due to all types of label shenanigans. And um, the album ended up being Forbidden, had Ice-T on it, and I was... Lucky enough to speak to Ernie C. from Body Count, who did produce the album. And um, was interesting to get his take on things because Tony Iommi really didn't say favorable things about the album. I, I still think that the album does have some really cool tracks on it. I mean, a track like Kiss of Death, which closes the album out, had that have had Dio singing it with the lyrics and had it been on... You know, one of the the Dio era albums, I think, or, or even if Ozzy had had his way with that, um, I think it would really slot up there with one of the classic tracks. But unfortunately, since it is Tony Martin, you know, a lot of people forget about um, forget about the album and, and forget about the track. Unfortunately, yeah. yeah. But um, uh, let's see what else came out in '95. Uh, of note, I mean, there there are tons of things. You had Doc and they got back together yep. again with their dysfunctional album, uh, which, depending on what copy of it you have, it either has George Lynch on it or it doesn't have George Lynch on it. Or um, there's the Japanese copy, I believe, doesn't have him on it. Then the U.S. copy had him mixed into some of the tracks. It was just this big hole. <laughs> <laughs> clusterfuck by labels and and everything else to sort of get that out and dysfunctional was i think the, a proper name for that album just the way it was handled um but it definitely had some cool tracks on it um i know as, as a lifelong docking fan that i am i remember hearing too high to fly for the first time and man that track just just the guitar parts in that um just the solo and and everything else it's just ridiculous. I mean, it was de definitely a return to form by the band. Um, yeah. and, and you're right about the dysfunctional. I mean, that was something we talked to Jeff Pilson about that too, and he laughed and he's like, "Yeah, it was. That was about the right title. It was. It was dysfunctional. So yeah, um, but it was. It was great to have him, you know, back and and uh, and you you can kind of really hear some of the you know the the Jeff and George songwriting go in, and especially you can really hear the the Jeff Pilson arrangements in that as well, which is for me one of the cool things to hear on it. Yeah, that's, I think, something that's really um, forgotten by a lot of fans is how much Jeff actually adds mm. um, to to that band or to any band. Right. I think the perfect example is that first Lynch Pilsen album. Oh, it's an awesome I think, album. Yeah, that is one of the best albums that both of them have played on. And, I mean, it's just ridiculous. It's one of the best releases, in my opinion, of the last 25 years easily because the songwriting is so strong start to finish. And, you know, there are times where I think maybe George gets, uh, he doesn't get carried away, um, but some of his soloing maybe is, um, I don't, I don't know. Um, 
just some of the things that he puts together, and, and I'm a big Lynch fan, just some of the things are, are questionable in my opinion. That Lynch-Pilson album is just perfect, start to finish. Um, there's just something about it, and and I don't know, uh, even with the uh, TNA album. Yeah, it's still, it, it's still it's, better than the TNA album, absolutely. Yes. It, it, the TNA album isn't bad, but it just doesn't have that certain something, maybe that I don't know. May, maybe the desperation that that those two guys wanted to show that you know, this is who we are. This is how we work together. You yeah, know, and it's, and it's cohesive. I mean, you know, from first track to last track, it's a very cohesive album. I mean, I was very glad that TNA came out, but it's it's not a cohesive album. You can tell it's this cast of characters and then this cast of characters and stuff. So it's it's kind of too broken up to be to know that. This is the band where the Lynch Pilsen one, it just sounds solid front to back the whole way. You're right. It is just an amazing album. It's one of my favorites. Yeah, without a doubt. Uh, let's see. We also had in 2005, uh, we had Iron Maiden's X Factor, which, depending on what side you're on, <laughs> it was a great album, or it was horrible because people wanted a Bruce Dickinson sound alike. Uh, on the album, but you still had, again, similar to that dysfunctional album. Um, you had some pretty strong tracks off of this that the band even went on to play with Bruce mm-hmm. Dickinson yeah. lineup. Yeah. Absolutely. You got, you know, another cool one from, from uh, that year is uh, with, with Ed Guy and, and putting out Savage Poetry. You know, Ed Guy is another band that they're not really big here in the States, but they definitely have a big following in Europe and. You know, Savage Poetry is another great example of an Ed Guy album, and and you know they're still putting out great stuff. The last one they put out was solid, um, so that's a that was a great one for, you know, coming out from '95. Definitely for me as a as a shred guy, of course, is uh, the self title one from Satriani. That's a although not all 100 percent metal, but it's it's some great guitar work in there. Uh, you know, right. yeah, the um, Extreme. We're waiting for the punchline. That's that one. For me, that one's a cool one because um, there was a band that we would that my band would do a lot of shows with, and sometimes they guys from that band would tech for my band, and my band would tech for their band, and so we hung out a lot. And it just so happened that we used to listen to that album when we were going to, to and from gigs all the time. So we we listened to that album a lot as well, and it it's one of those ones where you, you listen to that and and uh, you just kind of like wonder like how could it have all turned out so badly for that band at that point after another another great release like that but that one there is one that's always stuck with me just because of the amount of time i spent listening to it with other musicians and just you know hanging out and having a great time you know you make an interesting point there had had the internet have been as prevalent as it is today with bands being able to carry on and release things on their own mm-hmm. Maybe a band like Extreme doesn't completely go away at that right. point. Yeah, I mean, I think there was, you know, there were definitely some some uh, kind of breaking things that were happening in there, you know. Um, and obviously, you know, since that band's from around here, you know, I do see um, some of those guys around, and I know they were starting to go into do other things. Nuno was, you know, wanting to do some of his uh, solo stuff, and you know, and all that stuff. But but I think you're right. I think if they were able to do more of that at that point, they it probably would have have gone on longer. Yeah, we probably would have seen them a lot sooner. I I, I would think that definitely would have been the case. Um, let's see, bands that got together at this point in 2005. 
A band that I've always enjoyed. Maybe some people think it's a little too corporate. The band Chevelle. Um, yeah, they're they're an interesting one because I like. Yeah. I, I would listen to them and be, wow, I really like this. And then I would like the next day be like, I'm not getting this. It was just for some reason they never <laughs> fully connected with me. What is kind of what I'm saying? I I think it's one of your classic bands that. Um, uh, if you have a greatest hits album of theirs, it's probably the the perfect fit because you're getting the ten tracks, their ten strongest tracks from beginning to end, and they seem like one of the you know best bands of that time period. But then when you go in and investigate each individual album, you know some are definitely a lot stronger than yeah. others. Um, but uh, what else? We also had. Uh, another band that got together in your neck of the woods, we had Shadows That's Fall. That's right, new wave of American heavy metal. That's right, out in uh, Springfield area. Absolutely. Yep. Oh, we had uh, Slipknot get together. We had another band from Massachusetts, Stain, mm-hmm. together. Yep. And uh, System of a Down, who I mentioned um, uh, during the 2005 portion, they got together in 1995. Um, bands that broke up at that time, and this is funny looking at this list because <laughs> all of these bands are almost all back together pretty, again. Pretty except much, for yeah, pretty much. It is funny to look at it, yeah. Except who came back with Mike Tornillo uh, or Mark. Mark is fantastic for that band, absolutely fantastic. Um, what else? We had The Cult, a band that I absolutely love that breaks up and gets back together more often than any other band. Yeah. Um, the one band that's never gotten back together again, Caius. I, th- I think I mentioned this during the last episode. Their um, their last release was aptly uh, titled, and it came out in 95, which is Andy Circus Leaves Town. I think they meant it by that title because we haven't seen them again. Nope. <laughs> Living Color got back together again. St. Vitus has gotten back together again. We had... Uh, Wino, who was arrested and deported a few months back uh, from Denmark, I believe. And um, Suicidal Tendencies, who I've seen quite a few times in concert over the uh, last decade or so uh, at various festivals here in Spain. Mm. Um, Let's see here. So for 95, uh, what album would, would you like to play to represent 95 and what song would you pick off of the album? Geez, you know, I've got I've got two that are really like up there. You know, one you've already mentioned, which is I, I've always been a huge Lynch fan, a huge Dawkins fan. Um, and and even you even mentioned the if I was going to pick an, a track off of off of Dysfunctional, it would be too high to fly. So, you know, it's it's that. And the other one that was really nice to see come back is was uh, with ACDC with Ballbreaker that that, you know, before that they had several albums that just really weren't cutting it. You know, it almost felt like they were maybe were phoning it in a little bit or they had lost their way. But, you know, Ball Breakers seemed to have come back with a little bit more of what you'd expect from that band. And, I mean, you don't expect anything different from ACDC. You expect the same thing. It's just that you expect it to, to hit you in a certain place. And, um, you know, this album started to, to do that again. Um, so it, it's really hard for me between those two albums Um but if I really had to like gun to my head decide, I would I would definitely be picking Dawkins with with um, too high to fly off dysfunctional. All right, cool. Let's 
play a little docking, and we'll check back in with you after Too High to Fly. Long for heaven, 
There we had a little docking with Too High to Fly coming off of the extremely dysfunctional album. <laughs> Even the cover is dysfunctional. It's all like shattered glass. It's great. Yeah. Um, getting back to ACDC, I actually got to see them on that Ball Breaker tour. And it was uh, very interesting at the um, uh, what is now known as the IZOD Center in New Jersey. The I forget if it was Continental Airlines Arena at that time. When we saw them back in 96 during that tour. And it was funny because from our perspective, uh, we couldn't see Phil Rudd. We could only see him uh, up on a video screen. <laughs> so the 
the whole joke of the night was uh, we got to see Phil Rudd on TV, basically at the show. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. I, and, and it was, a, you know, it's a it's a great album too. Um, you know, I love the fact that our buddy Mike Frazier was involved in it as well, and, and he continues to this day to be involved with that band as well, which is something that really tells you about being part of the ACDC family is 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 that. And I know when we recently talked to him, we we had to resist actually asking questions about what was going on with, with Rock or Bus because at that point it wasn't out yet. But um, yeah, just I think it's just such a great album. Yep, I would have to agree. It's Probably one of my favorite albums by the band. Mm. Uh, but uh, anyway, let's let's see. My pick for 95, and this was very difficult for me, but there's an album that I still play all the time that uh, came out in 95. To me, it's this artist's last passionate, strong album. The album started out with Steve Vai on guitar, and unfortunately, due to uh, legal issues and uh, lawyers and whatnot, um, the album Osmosis by Ozzy Osbourne ended up having a return of Zach Wilde. And, I mean, this album, to me, uh, again, everything after this, you've had a few bright spots here and there, but Osmosis is the last really, really good Ozzy album in my opinion, um, to add weirdness to uh, the whole Osmosis album and tour. Things started out with uh, Geezer and Dean Casernovo behind Ozzy, and that quickly switched up to Robert Trujillo and uh, Mike Borden and the introduction to most people of Joe Holmes. Right, yeah, I know. It's just like a it's like great album, but you know, revolving door and everything that happened afterwards. Yeah. Yeah, just a very strange time period. Yeah, uh, and, and it's even interesting, you know, as far as like writing credits on this one as well, where you've got you've got like Jim Valance involved. You, you've got uh, no, not the first time that Lemmy's made a, a contribution to an Aussie album, but you got Lemmy in there and Steve Vai in there, and it's and even Mark Hudson is is involved in in this one as well. So there's a lot of stuff going on with this album. Yeah. Uh, so let's check out the track. Thunder Underground coming off of Osmosis.
there. You had a little bit of Ozzy, Thunder Underground. Um, have you liked the work that Ozzy has put out since this has come out? To be honest, no, not really. It's, you know, there's, there's been some great moments, um, but I don't think there's been anything that, that he's done that I've like liked everything that's that's going on with it, you know? It's, it seems almost like um, almost like he got into a, a machine thing where he was just kind of churning them out. And um, I'm not really sure how much of a voice in the band yet that, that Gus G has, uh, you know, kind of like waiting on the next album with Gus on it to see where that goes as well, because you don't know how much of the stuff from the last one was left over with stuff he did with Zach. And I mean, I love the relationship that he has with Zach. It's obviously have a you know, a great relationship and everything else. But um, yeah, it just, I don't know. It's, it's just kind of the whole Aussie thing to me over the last few years, just kind of gotten a little bit weird. How much does BLS being around sort of cheapen per se uh, what Aussie does? Because, you know, a lot of the, yeah, there's a lot of care. A lot of Zach's character is that you hear in the Aussie song. You definitely hear in, in everything that BLS does. Right, and maybe there are a lot of great BLS songs that, you know, if you had Ozzy fronting them or Ozzy performing them, maybe the albums would be completely different. It would it would be a a very different uh, beast altogether. Mm-hmm. Whereas you're getting Zach doing his thing and really going over the top and still being able to riff as much as he want and do ballads the way that he wants to do them. Whereas when he's brought back into the Aussie mix, it's maybe there are a lot more voices involved in, um, in telling them how to tone things down or maybe how to make things even more commercial per se. Yeah, I think I think uh, you you think you hit it with the with the commercial part. I think you absolutely positively hit it because with with BLS, you can tell Zach just does whatever the hell he feels like doing whenever. I mean. He, he would yeah. probably put out a flamenco album next if he felt like it kind of thing and not give a crap. Where I think, yeah, with Ozzy, it definitely comes into like, nope, nope, Ozzy can't do that. He's only got to do this. And I think you hit yeah. it with the commercial part. I, I think No More Tears was definitely a, a turning point in the sense that um, since Mama I'm Coming Home took off, since then you've always had to have your your two Mama I'm Coming Homes off of each album and – um, unfortunately, I think as time has gone by, that's even maybe permeated throughout the the entire album. With okay, well, let's see how many radio friendly tracks we can get out there. Whereas, if if you look at the meat and potatoes of you know what he plays live, uh, all that early Randy Rhodes stuff, mm. I mean, yeah, now it's made its way onto classic rock radio, but because the people that are in charge are people that are you know, um, late thirties, mid forties, um, getting up into their fifties. So there are people that grew up listening to this, and that's why it's on classic rock radio. I don't think a track like I don't know was instant rotation. You know, back in in the early eighties. Right. You know, at least right. I don't remember it being. You right. know, absolutely. Uh, so let's see. We did uh, two thousand five, ninety five. So now we have 85, 85 again, another year that had a lot of great um, albums. Yeah, 85 and, and is, I mean, it's insane the amount of releases, you know, between 
what you look at for 75, what you look five in, in 95, and you look at what came out in 85, and it's just it's just mind-numbing the amount of stuff that, come, that came out in that year. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I compiled a list of, you know, something for each year, and 85 had everything beat with the amount of hard rock and metal releases mm. by far. Yeah. So many great things, um, or infamous, depends on how you look at it. You have <laughs> Fly on the Wall by ACDC, which um, Angus has been on record to say that it's his least favorite release by the band. Um, you have Aerosmith getting back together again with Dun and Mirrors. You have Alcatraz putting out their first album with Steve Vai. Steve Vai and a- Graham Bonnet. It's like, I'll take more of that, please. Yeah, amazing album. And little what a year later vies off with uh roth mm-hmm. yeah um as we mentioned during the last episode you had the double release by anthrax mm-hmm. you had anvil with back waxed uh who you thought of that Arthur's... name for the album i mean really that's that's like you you have to like Best stop and, and like concentrate on saying the name it's just like a horrible name for an album yeah and on top of that, it's almost like a tongue twist. Yeah. There. So, you know. Um, Armored Saint with Delirious Nomad. Oh, that is had- awesome. That is like uh, I'm a diehard Saint fan, and, and that's just one of the best best releases from that year is, is Delirious Nomad. Absolutely. Great, great Although album. the song Delirious Nomad, not on it, but yeah. <laughs> uh, a, a band that it's funny it's one of those bands that um has been able to hang on to their sort of cult status and has put out so many great things over the years working on a new album can't wait to hear it so um let's see who else blitzkrieg mm-hmm. put out a time a time of changes uh the album included the track blitzkrieg but um that had to be um, a re-recording of the, of the track, I'm assuming, because, um, or I'm getting my years mixed up here now, because uh, Ride the Lightning came out in '84. Yeah, no, this right? was this was the one where uh, um, when uh, uh, Brian Ross, the vocalist, decided to to like rebirth the uh, the band again and put this out. Uh, I guess um, uh, Metallica maybe had. Um, uh, set things in motion, but it couldn't be that because was Met- I mean, you would know this better better than I would. I was still in a uh, in a state where Kiss, Twisted Sister, and uh, Motley Crue and Quiet Riot were really the only things on my radar <laughs> at that time. Um, was Metallica that big of an entity at that time in '85? No. That no, it would it yeah. would not have been like the oh gee, it's it's big enough to to uh to go no absolutely not not at that point okay um we had the cult with love um we had docking with yet again another release under lock and key which maybe has some of the craziest outfits ever (laughs) (laughs) by end and it's funny i've heard them say in numerous interviews that the label paid for those outfits Mm -hmm. and more one of the members promptly uh, threw it in the garbage after the um, the photo shoot, and the the label was supposedly uh, pretty pissed off at them because all the clothes were were custom made, and they were expecting them to tour with with that stuff. And when they saw them on stage and uh, with leather pants and black T-shirts, that it wasn't what they were expecting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
you had a Mike Pattonless uh, Faith No hmm. More with We Care A Lot, an album that had Chuck Mosley singing, and um, uh, really the, the only track that from his era that still uh, consistently gets played by the band. Uh, you had another band, one of my all-time favorites. Uh, you had Fastway putting out which what would be sort of the, the nail in the coffin for them, although they put out uh, one other album with uh, Dave King on vocals after this, which would have been the um, Trick or Treat soundtrack. Right. And then, they, and then they did the, they've done that one recently, though, too. Was it last year or two years ago? They put out uh, an album as well? Yeah, they put that one out with um, the singer of Little mm-hmm. Caesar. Yeah, uh, yeah, I can't remember the guy's name, but yep. Toby Jensen, maybe? I think you're right. I think that's something? who it was. Oh, or is it is it Jepson? Jepson, yeah. could be. Okay. I mean, I, I love this band. I love everything that they released with Dave King, and there are certain releases that they had with Lee Hart that I enjoyed, but that last release really lost me. I mean, I, I really wanted to to like that album, and, and I played it a bunch of times, but I just couldn't get mm. into it. But uh, getting back to Waiting for the Roar... Um, I remember reading a, a Guitar World interview with Fast Eddie Clark saying that this album had forever uh, made him a debtor <laughs> <laughs> because um, basically he didn't want to let Dave King go from the band. Um, Dave King coerced him to um, move up to Ireland and pretty much reform Fastway with all of his uh, buddies more or less. Uh, they moved down to London to record in Abbey Road Studios and use the London Philharmonic on the album. So uh, factor all these things together in a prolonged recording period. And he supposedly said at that point in time that um, that he owed some somewhere in the neighborhood of like $800,000 for the recording of that album and that he would forever have to pay for that a month at a time <laughs> until... Um, until the day he dies, basically. So uh, found it rather interesting. That's the uh, you, you have the um, the prestige of recording in such an important studio, but at the same time, man, wish it would have been. I like the album and all, but I don't know. Would have been one of the first two albums I'd understand, but man, oh yeah, man, yeah, uh, definitely, yeah. Grill School. I mean, they put out Running Wild in uh, in '85. They're they're I've I've long been a sucker for that band ever since seeing them live a long time ago in Boston. Um, that's a pretty cool album. They actually even do a Kiss cover on there. What is it? Uh, do you love me? They do on there. Um, that's a pretty cool uh-huh. album. Yeah. Yeah. There's. This is also a very important year for live albums. Um, you had Iron Maiden with Live After Death. And you had the Scorpions with Worldwide yeah, Live. That was huge for them, absolutely huge. That was enormous. And that was, I mean, me being a kid at that time, you know, I, I take that back. I said I was only into those bands. I would actually say, I would actually have to say that the uh, next few years after this would be the first few years where, uh, at the time, I could get into bars here in Spain. So come over. Um, as a kid, uh, 12, 13 years old, you were tall enough to reach the register and pay for a beer. They'd serve one up to you. And at the time, Worldwide Live was on constantly. I mean, I can't tell you how many times, you know, things like um, 
Bad Boys Running Wild would be on the radio or, or coming home or, or things like that. Um, what other important releases? We had uh, Venom with Possessed. Yeah, King Cobra, Ready to Strike, another great album. Uh, Keel, yeah. Right to Rock. Um, you know, that one there. Possibly, I mean, yeah, pulled, yeah, pulled a lot of people in with that one. And, uh, you know, definitely that's a, that's a pretty cool one. Um, I mean, this whole, I mean, that, that year is just, you know, it's insane. UFO, Misdemeanor, another killer album. Um, Wasp, Last Command. I mean, There's just so many great tracks off of Last Command. Um, and it's one of those ones that's, you know, again, Blackie, like not caring what the hell he was doing and just going out there and doing it. So that's great. Um, Sinner, Touch of Sin. They just they just did a whole like re-recording, re-release of Touch of Sin, and um, it came out great. I was fortunate to talk to to Matt about that when it came out. But um, Touch of Sin by Sinner was was great to finally have those guys out there putting out albums. So yeah, that's a that was a great release for that year. You also had Striper with Soldiers Under yeah. Command. That album turned so many people onto Striper. Um, I remember at that time, you know, you started seeing people, you know, with striper T-shirts all over the place. You started seeing, you know, the the stands in the local record shops, and I mean, it was um, hard to ignore it because I mean, definitely the the, the yellow and black attack was very prevalent everywhere. Yeah, you know, yeah, of course. I mean, Megadeth, right? Killing is my business. I mean. If you want to go like full 180 degrees from from a striper with with uh, with that another another amazing amazing album uh, um, easily another one of those albums that's that's been a favorite of mine for a long time. And and nowadays you'd probably have it'd probably be easier for a uh, Dave Mustaine Michael Sweet duet than uh, <laughs> than, than um, possibly Dave Mustaine duetting with. Uh, you know, so, some sort of death metal band. Yep. So. Yeah, that's very, very true. Yeah, um, you know, Tokyo Blade. They did that uh, Black Hearts and Jaded Spades, and you know, another another band that uh, recently reformed in the last few years as well. And that that was a cool one that was out there, and uh, and uh, with Trouble with the Skull, and and um, you know, now they have that Ollie Olsen had formed that new band called the Skull, which I think he just recently left, like this weekend. Um, so that's yeah. you know. It's it's just yeah I mean you look at the sheer amount of releases for '85 and it and and the fact of like like how all over the place they are as well and, and that you know most of us were listening you know just kind of pulling from all of this stuff um, it's pretty amazing right. too and yet you had a bunch of other people that that really did just kind of stick to the only you know just what they heard uh, heard on the radio or, or uh, just what was really popular but uh, yeah it I mean it's a great a great year for for metal you know with 85 still you know you're still two years away from the slickness of of 87 so you still kind of have a, a more raw sound as well and stuff so uh yeah i just i think it's a killer year a few years before digital actually really starts to come mm -hmm. into play uh so let's see uh with 85 if you had a album and track that you'd like to play, which would they be? Oh, you know, this one, again, 85, it's tough. You know, I obviously love Armored Saint. They're a great band, continue to be a great band, and, and they were, I can't wait to hear what they're recording now as well. They've been in the studio the last few weeks, so, you know, insane stuff that's in there. Um, you know, Kicks really came into their own in 85 with Midnight Dynamite as well. But, you know, and I'm another 
big Dio fan, and you know, I think Sacred Heart was just a really, really well done album. Um, just a lot of great tracks on there, and um, I always like the track Rock and Roll Children on there. It's it's just this cool mid tempo thing, and it sounds heavier than it actually is. It's it's just a just a really cool thing, and and definitely that's probably one of my favorite tracks off of there is that one um, off of Sacred Hearts is, is uh, Rock and Roll Children. All right, so let's hear it. Rock and Roll Children by Dio.
We are back with Scott from Focus on Metal. That was his pick for 85. That was Rock and Roll Children by Dio. A very cool track. I remember seeing that on MTV all the time uh, when they still played videos. (laughs) (laughs) That that should be their new punchline, you know, instead of music television. When they used to play videos. (laughs) So um, for 85... Uh, This is something that I wanted to include somewhere along the lines or somewhere along the way throughout this series. I I knew that this album would need to be played just because, to me, just the riff for this track and just uh, Vito Brada's soloing all over it, even though it is um, very uh, copycat-ish to... Eddie Van Halen, I think he wasn't going too over the top yet uh, with Fight to Survive. Uh, definitely had more of an old school feel to it. Again, uh, we were a few ways from, or a few years away from the slickness factor coming into everyone's production. So the album is a lot roar. Uh, it also isn't on. Um, I believe they were on what Columbia when they got big. Um, so this was on. I think it was Grand Slam yeah, Records. Yeah, yeah, or something. It, was, it was. Yeah, Grand Slam. Yeah. So, um, and and the way that I got turned on to this album and track uh, was afterwards. Was after they had gotten huge. I remember they had this MTV concert that MTV played all the time, and you know what turned most people onto them was the album Pride, and tracks like Wait and things right. like that, and so they're much mellower things. And then all of a sudden. You know, they're playing live and they're and they're pulling out all these like big time riffs and stuff. We're like, where the hell is this yeah, coming and from? Definitely, you know? I mean, you're right. When they started getting popular, what you heard on the album a lot, and it was funny because I remember there was a guy in in the, a rehearsal space we were renting, and uh, he was he was like a he thought he was a big Vito Barda fan, but he it was all that play and then manipulate the volume swells with this pinky kind of thing, which was kind of when they started getting big. That's kind of the stuff they expected him to do was those kind of of like the swells and the legato stuff. And you go back to this album, and like you said, there's riffs there instead. It's it's just a different sound. Yeah, c- completely. I mean, you would think it was a completely different band. Um, but uh, anyway, let's check out the title track from the album Fight to Survive. This is White Lion. <laughs> Times that's many in the past. 
All right, so that wraps up 85. We are now down to the final stretch. Uh, a year that you had mentioned that for you was very difficult to um, to make your decision. And looking at the releases uh, was was a handful of bands that really had put some material out. And it's funny that more than one band at this time was putting out multiple yep, releases. Yep. And, and sometimes some years. big releases from those bands, too, or, or salvation releases, I should say. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But back then, labels were allowing them, okay, well, uh, that's another strike. Uh, we'll give you another shot. Um, so quickly, you know, within a eight-month period, there you had album number two. So... Um, some very important releases that came out this year. And, I mean, this is almost like a who's who of classic rock radio that you hear still today. Uh, you had Alice Cooper with Welcome to My Nightmare, Rush with Fly By Night, Physical Graffiti by Led Zeppelin, uh, Kiss's Dress to Kill, Aerosmith's Toys in the Attic, Bad Company with Straight Shooter, Uriah Heep with Return to Fantasy, uh, the album that... Chris Vaglia picked on the last episode. You had Rainbow, Richie Blackmore's mm. Rainbow. Um, I had picked Black Sabbath, Sabotage. Uh, you had UFO with Forset, Budgie, uh, Kiss Alive, Thin Lizzy with Fighting, uh, an album that I'm sure Richie hardly has listened to. <laughs> and uh, Ted Nugent's first solo release. Uh, we also had Scorpions with Entranced. The Tommy Bolin, Deep Purple with Come Taste yeah. the Band. Uh, ACDC with TNT, which was pretty much re-recorded and re-released worldwide as High mm. Voltage, what, about Something a year like later? That. Yeah, yeah. This was, I think this was just, yeah. a, I think, Australia-only release as TNT, yeah. Right. Uh, bands that had gotten together in 75. This is, <laughs> this is ridiculous. We, we mentioned Ted Nugent, but... Uh, you had Angel, you had Iron Maiden, Legs Diamond, Motorhead, Quiet Riot, Rainbow, which we mentioned as well, The Runaways, Stars, and Triumph. And Riot, too. I mean, another another great band. It is, And it's kind of interesting, right? I mean, here they are forming in 75, but how long was it until people really heard a lot of these bands, too? It's, it's, um, it's interesting. You got someone like Ted Nugent, who was together, I think a lot between talent and management just put him right out there but then you had something like quiet riot which was you know for a long time it was just la and you know you can of course hear all about this in the great uh, bob nelbanian documentary inside la metal but you know they were just kind of known local band and or known in japan and not even the quiet riot that most people think of when they think quiet riot but i mean the amount of time between these guys forming and them taking off kind of also says something about the music industry as a whole at that point too and like what you talked about you know, two strikes, you're out. Where they were, they were doing developing at this point too, and letting bands run for a while. Yeah, how many bands? And you look at huge bands that their big release wasn't until their their third or fourth yeah. release. I mean, Fly by Night for Rush was is was not a huge release for them. It was for you know, for me, it's weird. I look at these and I realize that I have almost all of these albums on vinyl still have them on vinyl with probably right. two exceptions, the TNT album from ACDC and uh, Bandolier from Budgie. Other than that, like I've got all of this on vinyl. It's, it's, 
And these weren't even like the big albums for a lot of these people. But yeah, Fly By Night, I mean, they, you know, they were still a ways off from really, you know, breaking big time um, with, uh, with what, with uh, 2112. So, you know, still, still back there a bit. You know, it's uh, just pretty cool when you look at, at uh, all of this. What? Because 2112 is what? 70, I think 76. So they're, you know, they're still off like essentially two more albums because they've got, what is it? Something came between Fly By Night and 2112. Remember, is it, was it Caress of Steel? Do you remember? Fly By Night and then Caress of Steel. Caress of Steel came out in 75 yeah. as well. Yeah. What and it didn't do much. I mean, because it was just, it was too, too progressive, too riffy, you know? But yeah. <laughs> but I mean, if you look at it, even still, I mean, Bastille Day is still a huge song oh, yeah, for them. Yeah, you know, definitely. <laughs> it, it's interesting, and and this is ex- exactly on point with what you're saying. I mean, how many how many albums did Rush release that you know they they have tracks that are huge for them, but the albums didn't sell. But since the band was allowed to lay a foundation and build upon it, they they have an almost cult following with a lot of these uh, albums that came out before they became a huge yeah, selling and act. even when you think about it with Rush, right? So they've got three albums in before they really hit with 2112. But the first one with John Rutsey, it's totally different than the two albums that follow that, too. So there's kind of like it's almost like they had two albums to really build that Rush foundation and kind of figure out what they wanted before they they kind of put put out the the big album it's it's amazing but the the fact that the record company stuck by them you know the fact that that Casablanca was still pouring money into Kiss after Dress to Kill you know and and uh yeah it's just it's it's amazing I mean, you wouldn't have that type of thing these days at all I mean at that time how many of these albums were huge I mean being you know, I was two years old at the time, but um, sort of looking back in revisionist history, I mean, I'm assuming that Welcome to My Nightmare was huge. Oh, yeah, because he's already, Physical. because Alice had that huge fan base, so that was, he was just, I mean, uber celebrity at that point. So, yeah, he couldn't lose with Welcome. Yeah, Physical Graffiti must have been huge. Yep, uh, which is, they were re-releasing twist. that, too. It's out, uh, it's out in February. You also have Toys in the Attic. Was Toys was Aerosmith huge by they that still time weren't as well? Huge. I mean, they were torn their butts off. Um, they had, you know, what they always call the Blue Army. So they definitely had that. But they, it wasn't until Toys where they had that that real big hit with Walk This Way. Uh, up until then, they were still they were still fighting it out. They were torn their butts off. You know, doing a lot of appearances with like. Uh, Ted Nugent was always on their bills and stuff like that, but they were still slogging it out. Gotcha. Alive obviously was huge when that right. came out. Um, and let's see, um, that first Nugent album in in hindsight, Stranglehold is a huge right. song. But was it that? I mean, was it from the get go? Was was that album? Or, or was that track instantly on rock radio at that time? No, I really remember that Stranglehold, it was the live version of that that, that um, people really hopped onto. It's almost like the Kiss thing, right? I mean, no one was listening to it, and then they put it out in the live, and all of a sudden people were like, hey, rock and roll all night and party every day. And it was that. So, yeah, it really, 
Um, I think the song that uh, people kind of took to off the debut Ted Nugent album was Hey Baby um, and not really Stranglehold, I think. But but the live one, people really got into that one. So that's an interesting point because obviously the 70s was the big live album decade because if you look at it, you had Frampton Comes Alive. You had the two Kiss live yeah, albums. Foghat. That had, was a huge live album. The Cheap mm-hmm. Trick, Live at Pond. And, and you had the uh, Ted Nugent album, the um, the Gonzo's album. Yeah, Double Life it? Gonzo, yeah. Um, so definitely it was something that was very special and, and almost quintessential to, to that decade. And it helped spawn a lot of these these bands, uh, even though, um, I mean, Cheap Trick did also have a following at that point. But I think after Budokan, Budokan is what I think most of, I mean, me personally, that's how I first, you know, found the yeah, band. Yeah, and, uh, and, and I think like that one there, it was for people that I, I think that maybe felt the albums were a little bit too vanilla or, and, and then they just, you just got a, like a harder edge off of the Budokan one. And I think it just, it just hooked people in. Um, the overall feel of the songs. Does it bother you that all these years later, the people are coming out of the woodwork saying that they aren't live albums? No, not really. It, you, you know that you, you know if you went to see anything live, even with what they were able to record at that point, you, you knew that all this stuff was getting screwed around with. It was a nice fantasy when you were little, buying these things and thinking that that's how they sounded, but. I mean, for me, at this point, I mean, I know the reality of it, so it, meh, it really doesn't. I mean, if you look at it, I mean, people still criticize it, but um, uh, so many bands are re-releasing their hits and uh, re-recording things, I should say, re-recording their mm-hmm. hits. Uh, so, I mean, it really is no different. Yeah, I, I mean, I mean, a lot of people are re-recording the hits because that's the only way they can make any money off the actual music anymore, too. So it's uh, kind of a, a crappy situation for them to be in. But, you know, it's, uh, it's the music industry. Yep, absolutely. Um, so for 75, what is what are your uh, picks? Well, 75, although, I mean, I'm so vested in a lot of these albums. And, you know, it's, it's just insane because this was, you know, me being able to have enough money to maybe buy one, maybe two albums, you know, riding my bike to get them and stuff like that. And the fact that I still have like all of them, um, I'm really vested in, in, in this year, but you know, it's the obvious thing. I'm a Boston guy. Aerosmith has always been like my band. And, um, and you know, and I can remember the fact that it was so cool for me having bought the other three albums then this one comes along and never really hearing much on the radio, but having, you know, actually hearing walk this way on AM radio in Boston was just mind blowing for me. Um, so this, this album to me was just, a, it still continues to be a really cool album. Although my favorite for Aerosmith still is rocks. Um, you know, toys was a great, a great album. And I, I think if I remember correctly, I think that the person that did the artwork for uh, toys, I think is actually one of the women that's a model on the um, Black Sabbath, Sabbath Bloody Sabbath album. I think there's some kind of relationship between the the cover artist. I don't know. It's back in my head somewhere. But um, but for me, 
Um, you know, this thing's got such great tracks on there. I mean, Toys of the Attic is like a, just kind of a barn burner one. As a, you know, at that point I was playing bass and I just would listen to that and couldn't imagine how you would play it on guitar. Um, just just killer stuff. Um, but for me, I think the one that's still the one I have the most fun playing, the most fun listening to on here is, uh, of course, at that point as an album. But what opened up side two was uh, a riff that uh, Tom Hamilton came up with, and that's Sweet Emotion. Just probably my favorite track off of this album. Awesome. So let's get into Sweet Emotion. Uh, a, a yet another track that was re-released. They're re-recording, re-released what in mm-hmm. late nineties. Uh, let's let's get into the original. Let's get into 1975's "Toys in the Attic" and "Sweet Emotion."
There we had a little Sweet Emotion by Aerosmith. Such a cool track. Um, that's one of those tracks that, you know, I'm... Uh, classic rock radio has ruined a lot of <laughs> songs for me, but that's still one that... Um, I mean, let's put it to you. Let, let me put it this way. Um, if I don't hear Walk This Way Again, I would have no issue with it, but... There's just something about Sweet Emotion, just the the whole, you know, in-the-pocket groove between Joey Kramer and Tom Hamilton and, you know, everything that's layered on top of that by um, Joe Perry and Brad and ultimately Steven Tyler. It just, it's the perfect formula for a great, great rock yeah, song. Yeah, and it's cool to know that, you know, it, it came from the bass player as well. A lot of people just assume a lot of these things are, oh, well, it's got to be Joe and Brad jamming or whatever. But the fact that, it, you know, it originated with with Tom Hamilton and the fact that, that Joey was able to kind of put some of his R&B background and slide it in there as well. And like you said, you get this really cool groove that goes on in there. And, and you know, you add your classic 70s talk box into there and stuff, and it's just such a great track. Absolutely. Uh, that was probably one of the first songs that I'd ever heard re-recorded uh, up until then. Well, when when the uh, this came out on a box set or no, it was the greatest hits was the um, probably the the uh, the first greatest hits that Geffen released because Columbia released <laughs> millions of of greatest hits for Aerosmith. Oh, over they the did years. without Aerosmith. No one bought them. But yes, they did. Yeah. Um I'm trying to think. It's it's the it's the album that has the uh the lady with the back turn and they're trying to undo the her bra. It's oh. anyway, it'll come to me eventually. But um that had to be the first time that a big band up until then re recorded a track, released it, and actually got a decent amount of airplay because they did a video for it and MTV was playing it all the time. Yeah. Yeah, they they did. It's uh yeah, it's it's just such a unique track. It absolutely is. What were your thoughts of the band when uh, when Perry and Whitford left? Since they are arguably one of your favorite yeah, bands, I mean, I had a I had a hard time with that. It was, I mean, I was happy that the the albums that Joe put out after that, especially the first two Joe Perry project albums, they are just amazing, amazing albums. Um, and you know, I still listen to them now. I I mean, I've got posters up on the wall from his appearances around here with the with the Joe Perry project. They were great, but you know, with with just with Joe leaving and the fact that, that Jimmy Crespo came in. I mean, Jimmy Crespo slotted in there pretty nicely. And you know, when you hear "Night in the Ruts" and people assuming it was all Joe, but there was a lot of Jimmy Crespo on there, he fit in pretty well to the band. And and I thought, yeah, all right, it, I I can deal with this. Joe went off. I still get Joe stuff coming in, but then. At, you know, once Brad left as well, yeah, it was, and you could tell just with the band too, with the popularity that they were, now they were playing like little clubs. They were playing, you know, clubs the size of clubs that my band was playing kind of thing. You could tell that even the, the fans were, you know, kind of drew back as well. And, and, you know, uh, Whitford St. Holmes, I think was a great band that, that, uh, that Brad Whitford did with Derek St. Holmes. I just, I wish that they would have gotten you know a lot a lot more airplay and a lot more popularity but yeah once it, it got to be that it was you know with rick Dufay and, and jimmy crespo some of the albums were, were pretty cool um but yeah it just it just didn't do it for me anymore like you know 
there's a few nice songs on Rock in a Hard Place that I like, but it was just you know just not as good. And even Done with Mirrors that I thought was gonna I was really looking forward to Done with Mirrors when it came out. That even that album kind of fell flat for me. And um, it wasn't until Permanent Vacation where I was starting to feel good about the band again. Definitely was um, the the turning point for most people, and actually. The turning point with having um, the band split in two, if you really look at it, because you started not only having the outside writers coming in, but you definitely had the uh, the Steven Tyler ballad mm-hmm. factor uh, starting to creep up, which is, you know, whether you like that or not, it's definitely sold a lot for them. It's done well for them. And... Um, I could have done without all of the the ballads on the last oh, album. Yeah, I mean that's the thing is, and is it, it's funny because you know, one of my daughters is a big Aerosmith fan now as well, and so I would always bring her to all the shows, and it, and she you know she likes a lot of the stuff that's like on Nine Lives and you know Get a Grip and stuff like that, and but she does likes a good chunk of the older stuff and appreciates it knows it all but she's firmly in that kind of newer camp of post-permanent vacation and and i'm more of everything that's pre-permanent vacation and when you're at that show and you watch the fans you know that's what you see as well and you know invariably as soon as like they start playing uh amazing from that soundtrack you know that's the time that all the guys that are about my age are all either heading for you know, the restroom or the beer tent, um, just like, and, you know, and, and all the women just kind of stay down there and you really see that split. And it's like you said, the new album with uh, music from another dimension. I mean, that album is clearly a Steven Tyler album and an Aerosmith album. You just can like go through each song and go, yep, that's an Aerosmith song. I, I, the band without Steven, and then this is a Steven track they've agreed to do kind of a thing. It's That one is probably the most yeah. apparently split album. Do you think the band would have had any sort of success had they have brought another singer in, as they were rumoring a few years ago when he was on American Idol, that, um, that they were auditioning people and threatening him that they were going to release an album without him, do you think they would have had any sort of absolutely. success? I absolutely think so. And people, I think, would argue with me to the death about it. Um, obviously, you know, Steven Tyler is an iconic front man, and he's a lot of people, you know, look to him as like they were, you know, his his was the influence for them being a front man and stuff. He, and the guy's an icon. But I think if they had gotten in and gone out and gotten something like, you know, they had talked about what, like having Miles come in, like, holy crap, the stuff they could have done with Miles fronting the band um, and having his appreciation of all the stuff that comes before, I think they would have put out some amazing stuff and yeah, you probably wouldn't have had as many of the, of the women in the audience going back, you know, they're not going to do amazing that night. So you're going to, you're going to miss that part of it. But I think that you'd have a lot more of the hardcore fans and a lot more of the, like the hard rock heavy metal fans going back and, you know, you know, and kind of maybe reversion back to that classic blue army thing. But I think that if they had done it, I think there would be a lot of people that would have embraced it. I think a lot of people thought that, you know, this constant like soap opera thing going on within there, people would go, okay, thank God, that's done. Let's move on. And uh, yeah, I think they still would have done well. I would have personally, if if I would have had to slot a singer in there and 
people already were up in arms about this particular person taking over for another iconic or infamous singer. Depends on how you look at it. Uh, would be John Karabi. Uh huh. Yeah. 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 He would. He would also. He's got that. He's got that voice that would that would fit. You know, definitely in there. Um, definitely, you know, great attitude and, and all of that. And, uh, yeah, I mean, he's speaking to him too. I mean, anybody that, that is a Karabi fan or wants to be, I think that, um, you must've heard it right. Uh, that Chris Zinzak and, and Aaron did a great two-parter with John, um, on the Motley Crue self-titled album. And I think you get a really good appreciation for, uh, for John Karabi on those two episodes of Decibel Geek. Um, I think you're right. I think he would have slotted into this band just incredibly. And he even cops to the fact that he's a huge Aerosmith mm. fan. So I think it would have been a good fit, but at this point, we'll never nope. know. Uh, <laughs> or, or maybe we will. You just... <laughs> or, or maybe we will because, you know, we started getting rumblings again uh, last year with Joe putting out some more solo stuff and working on what was that, like a Christmas EP he, he, he did put do a out? Christmas EP, yeah. And, and I mean, I wasn't, you know, I'm. I'm a huge Joe Perry fan. Anyone that's been in bands with me, they quickly realize that, you know, I've listened to this guy all my life. A lot of my playing influence comes out of him. I even tap my foot backwards like he does. Um, it's kind of a little bit disturbing. But, um, yeah, I mean, the last Al Soul album he had, I, I wasn't I wasn't really thrilled with it. I could see kind of stuff that was in there that I liked, but but it didn't do for me what, like, his first two that came out and did. It's almost like... He needs that other songwriting partner that he had with with those first two albums to to really bring it all together. Um, you know, like when he did, you know, with the album he did with Charlie Farron. I think that'd be a great a great one. I mean, Charlie's still in the area. He's like one town over from me. He's still in the business. I think it'd be great to to actually get those guys together and do something. And even when I chatted with Joby, something I didn't record, but we did talk a little bit about Charlie as well, kind of joking around about that. Um, after he realized, you know, I'm a Boston guy and, and know a lot of the same places or people and stuff. But I think, yeah, that would be a that would be a great partnership as well to do that. But uh, but for Aerosmith itself, I think you're right. I mean, Karabi would be, a, I think, a great, great fit. I think the issue that they have and, and Joe with some of the solo releases is similar to what we mentioned about Ozzy. Once you get that one huge hit on the radio, um, especially within the last decade or two. And, and if it's something that's, uh, you know, commercial, they always have to try to slide something somewhat commercial in there just just in case, you know, maybe this, this will blow up. But I think ultimately... Um, just what you're saying. They they have to look towards the Blue Army, which is who supported them mm. from the start, and is going to be the fan base that's actually going to go out and, and buy yeah, these because, albums. Yeah, because, I mean, you look so, at music for another dimension with everything they put into it. I mean, how long did any of that stuff actually last in rotation on the radio? It was like, oh, when did it come out? Oh, it's, it's already off. Um, so, you know, putting that commercial thing on there didn't really gain them almost nothing for sales for that album. But if they had gone and done that, you know, much talked about, you know, return to form Aerosmith album, I think they would have maybe not had a radio hit, um, maybe on an AOR station or something. But I think they would have had a lot more sales from just people going, oh, my God, it, it's back. It, it's going back to the, you know, stuff that was earlier stuff that, 
I know they still have it in their souls to do. You listen to, um, you know, Joe talk and Brad talk and, and it's, it's there. It's just that, um, they just need that little bit of impetus to go, you know, screw it. Let's, let's just do it. Do you have any hope for the supposed new, uh, Whitford St. Holmes album? You know, I, I do. I, I think that, um, you know, Derek St. Holmes, he, he's a very strong personality. I mean, he has to be to survive in Nugent camp. Right. Um, and, and I think he's always still maintained that kind of level of, of like R and B and, and that kind of Detroit feel with what he does. And I think you mix that with, with Brad's kind of bluesy stuff. And I think they're going to come out with some cool stuff. That, um, I, Chris mentioned it to me, uh, Chris Sinzak. Uh, I guess they're supposed to start recording that within the next few months, if I'm and, not and mistaken. And probably down in so Chris's neck of the woods, too, right? Because I think that's where Brad's living now. Yep. He, he mentioned that he had just moved down there, uh, I guess, towards the end yeah. of last year. So I know he's also that uh, so. Brad's also a big, uh, big NASCAR and racing guy and stuff. I think he's got some investments within there as well. And, of course, you know, that area is more kind of, ground zero for that kind of activity not up here in boston so yeah <laughs> you know they aren't making a um a, any type of track throughout the uh, the city itself going through the big <laughs> no but they do have um i can't remember which guys i think it's i think it's tom, it might be tom and brad i think they actually do have a um uh, a thing called uh, it's like called like F1 or something that is an indoor racing track and arcade and stuff like that that they have up here in the Boston area. But uh, but no, I don't think you'd be doing much racing through the big dig. You'd be unless it was really like <laughs> stop and go racing. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> all right. So before we hop on the last track here, want to remind all you guys to check out Scott at Focus on Metal. Dot net. Uh, go to iTunes, subscribe to Focus on Metal, and leave him your comments. Um, uh, what else um, do you want to bring to the listeners' attention? Um, I, mean, I mean, that pretty much covers it, you know, and like uh, the fact that what Victor and I were talking about earlier with Strange Highways, we're going to have a killer new series for 2015 that we're doing. Um, you know, and obviously we talk about like 1985 and that's an, a year that was pretty big for what we're doing. And that's, um, we're doing a whole project on little mountain sound, talking to a lot of the engineers, owners, managers, um, a lot of great artists that actually recorded there, all agreed to come on and talk about little mountain, what it meant to them, what it meant to the music industry. So we're having a, a big, you know, multi-episode, um, throughout 2015 on little mountain. So that's, that's our big project for this year. Um, so yeah, if you, if you, if you like a lot of those classic albums that came out of Little Mountain, um, there'll be a lot of, a lot of stuff in there, a lot of great stories about things, some great Aerosmith stories that were told to us, um, a couple of very funny Jimmy Page stories as well. So, um, yeah, great series. We're looking forward to, to letting everybody hear that this year. Awesome. When is that going to start up? Do you have any, um, date specific uh, or not really? Any? It's, you know, I've, we've got a, a bunch of audio already. We've interviewed about eight or nine different people. We have a few other people that are coming up um, this month. Um, and so still recording that stuff. But I think that I'm going to start kicking off the episodes for that in probably in March. And then hopefully we'll do, you know, a few each month or, or and try to get them all out by the end of the year. So kind of like what we did with Strange Highways. Cool. Definitely look forward to that. 
And as far as Mars Attacks is concerned, uh, if you want to check us out on Facebook, Twitter, G+, or, or anything else, just go to the homepage, MarsAttacksRadio.com. On the right-hand side there, you'll find all the pertinent links to the uh, social media sites where you can follow us. Uh, please do so. Also, follow us on iTunes, Stitcher, or just take the RSS feed right off the um, top right-hand corner of the homepage. And uh, that's pretty much it. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Decade Series. Uh, before we do cut out, uh, we are going to play one last track. And this is probably the heaviest track off of this album. Uh, looking back in retrospect, you know, there are a lot of people that uh, I would say a lot of younger hard rock and metal fans will sit there and say, oh, well, so-and-so isn't a metal band or so-and-so isn't a hard rock band because, you know, who knows, because their parents listened to them or because it was way back when, when a lot of these bands were, you know, pushing envelopes and pushing things in um, yeah, different always, directions. Always an argument, right? Hard rock, heavy metal and all that. And I know one of my other co-hosts, Jay, I think, he, he really got it down in one, one episode when he said it's all about it's all about your tolerance, you know, so it's like it's kind of the you're tolerant of the hard rock, but you're intolerant of the heavy metal. And it's, it's I think it's always been that classic argument about, oh, are they hard rock or they heavy metal? And it's just kind of the year and the tolerance, I think, for the year that kind of delimits it. Yeah, I'd have to agree. So um, the band that I want to play, band that most people would group into classic rock, but man, this track to me is is a heavy track and Definitely pushing the envelope with the layering of vocals and everything else. The track is the Prophet Song, and it comes off of A Night at the Opera by nice. Queen. So this will take us out. Thanks, Scott, for joining hey, us no once problem. again. Always love doing shows with you, Victor. Yeah, it's always a, a ton of fun to have you on. So you will hear Scott in the future, without a doubt. Um, thanks again for listening, and we'll check you out or check us out <laughs> on the episode of Mars Attacks.
Thank you for listening to the Mars Attacks podcast. This concludes our show.